Shall we uh, take the uh, the cue and go on African time? <laughs> All right, we may do that. We may do that. Hey, it's uh, wonderful to be uh, with you. You're going to get used to us over the next uh, 11 or 12 weeks. Uh, my wife Julie over here, uh, please uh, make yourself known after service. Um, and we, we're just in looking forward to, to serving the church uh, over the, the next few weeks. I thought this morning I would like to uh, introduce the series in a different sort of way. Now, what will be provided each week is some sermon notes. Uh, they're on the table uh, behind you. I'd encourage you to grab these as we go through. That, that will be helpful. And on the back of the sermon notes is uh, three questions that are, you can use either in your own personal study, in your quiet times, or within your your study groups or whatever, just to mull over. It will help connect the dots, so to speak, between what is spoken on a Sunday and the, the process uh, through the series. So feel free if you want to grab some of these, just go and help yourself to the back there if someone might want to give them out or, or whatever it may be. The uh, methodology that I'm going to use uh, through these 12 weeks is what I would call expository in nature. I've noticed in my own ministry and over the last uh, 30 or so years there's been an incredible decline in what we know as expository preaching. And I think that the decline is due to two factors. First factor and the most concerning factor is a move away from the authority of Scripture in a believer's life. And this started back in the 50s and 60s amongst so-called evangelical Christians where the inerrancy of the Bible was being disputed. What do I mean by inerrancy? Inerrancy is a term we use to discuss that God's word is God's word. God has breathed his word out. It's his word. It is without error in the original documents and therefore is to be trusted implicitly when it comes to our life of faith. So the first factor is the the authority of the Bible over a believer's life. And the the second factor, I think, is this whole rise in what I would call the gospel of felt needs. Today we probably call it the gospel or prosperity gospel, where from many pulpits uh, around the world is touted you can have your best life now and you can live in the blessings here and now as opposed to realising that the biblical record is totally different to that. As believers we're called to take up our cross and follow Christ and part of that is suffering, part of that is persecution, part of that is Uh, standing for your faith in a world, a secular world that consistently wants to destroy you. So hence the need for us to get back to the Bible. The need for us to realise that it is God's word, it is inerrant and the gospel is clear 
inside what our response is to, to that as followers of Christ. Yeah, see, the overall purpose of the series, and I want to develop this obviously over the next uh, 10, 11, 12 weeks, is realising that there's a consistent battle that rages amongst us, right? We have this battle in our Christian lives between what I would call legalism, and, and that term will be explained over the period of time, and licence. And these two things uh, wrestle within our souls throughout the process of becoming like Christ. Many of Paul's New Testament letters address either one or both of these issues. So this theory is really going to try and drive down and say, what does it mean to walk as a believer? How are we to walk in a, a manner worthy of a calling? Ephesians 4.1 says, Now, therefore, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of which Christ has called you. And Paul uses this command, this term walk, or in the NIV it's the word live, predominantly in the book of Ephesians and, the, and Colossians. And so we're going to spend... Weeks just looking at that and, and seeing how that practically applies for the demographic within Monty. I look out and I see a mature church. I see a young church. I see a, a spectrum across the generation. And, and the wonderful thing is God's word is, is there for all our instruction, especially when it comes to walking and living for him. So I guess the, the, the purpose, the theological purpose of this series is to develop a biblical model of what we would call progressive sanctification. Or We all realise it, don't we? We're all in a stage in life where we are walking step by step. And if we're followers of Christ, then, then he is revealing stuff in our hearts that we need to wrestle with and we need to change. And so one day we will be Christ-like. That's the goal. And I want to bring to you that the model for this is based entirely on God's gift of grace. Through God's grace, our affections will be stirred. It's through His indwelling, empowering Spirit that our hearts will be shaped and changed in a way to follow Him. You see, what we'll discover is we'll talk often about what God has done through Christ. This is what we'll term the indicative, what God has done through Christ. And on the counter side is how should that motivate you and I as believers of Christ? That's known as the imperative or the command. I propose that Christ must be at the centre of our affections as we seek to serve and honour Him. Serve and honour Him in this community, in our workplaces, amongst our families, in the culture in which we live. Today we're going to start the process. and Today it's going to be 
a start, but almost a finish. We're going to start from the end and look back. And uh, we're going to start in Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, could you please turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. I encourage you to have your Bibles with you. We'll be reading a, a fair portion of Scripture today as we uh, draw some points about this church at Ephesus. Revelation chapter 1. What do we read here? And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I understand most here have a NIV. It's pretty similar, but I'll be using ESV uh, throughout the series. So if you've got a, an iPad or a phone, slide to ESV and that might be helpful. Revelation chapter 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Clearly, revelation is about what? The revealing of Christ. Let's read further down in in verse 9. John the Apostle, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on the account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamon, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and to Laodicea, or churches what we know in modern day Turkey, Asia Minor. This is the, the, the churches that, that predominantly Paul had church planted through his ministry. So they're in that area of, of Turkey. Then I turned, this is John, verse 12, to see a voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man clothed with a long robe and with golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And what was John's response? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. You're studying the book of Revelation, that is a key verse. Christ himself is giving the layout for the book of Revelation. I'm going to tell you about things you have seen. Now write about those things. Write about the things that are, this vision, and write about the things that will take place after this event. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, verse 20, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. As I said, this, this revelation that John receives after many years in apostolic ministry, if you like, a beloved disciple of Jesus, the only one that hasn't been crucified or, or lost his life 
because of some you know, form of torture or persecution has been banished to the Isle of Patmos. And Christ himself gives a vision of who he is. Now we read these metaphors and we think, well, a head that's white like wool. Was that grey or was that just white? And it doesn't sound very glorious, but this language is incredibly glorious. John paints a picture for us, a glorious radiance of the person of Christ, the resurrected Christ. There's a Christ of, it's a picture of Christ being the head of the church. Because he, he stands in the midst of the church. It's a picture of Christ ruling and reigning over the church. It goes back to the Gospels when, when Christ himself says to Peter and his disciples, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is the vision that John receives of the ruler, of the head, of the glorious resurrected Christ who stands in the midst of the church. Let's read further. We read the first seven verses of chapter 2. The angel, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. But this I have against you. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember therefore from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. History is uh, littered with stories and endeavours of of great movements that started spectacularly. But within a few short years, fell into obscurity. Sometimes the, the fall is very quick and very decisive. But most times, um, this fall happens over a considerable period of time. And sometimes this type of stuff is evident within church. You know, church is planted with great enthusiasm and we saw some of the evidence of that today through the, the mission trip in Africa there. Churches are planted with great enthusiasm. Evangelism is the centre of the church and the impact is seeing the benefit, the community is seeing the, the impact of, of this church in, in and around its community. The church grows People come to faith in Christ. The leadership of the church says, okay, now we have believers. We need to mature them. We need to, to ensure that the flock is mature and it's grounded and taught in the things of God. 
we need to maintain the fact that that we're not going to be tossed to and fro by any wind of doctrine. The church wants to uphold the sufficiency and inerrancy of Scripture. The church wants to uphold that that salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. We see this. But then what slowly happens, before you even can know and recognise it, the church leaves its primary purpose. It's like slow-moving erosion. We all know what erosion is, don't we? If you go and visit a place probably year in, year out, you may never notice erosion. You may never notice a a side of a, a bank on a river that is slowly being eroded. But if your visitation is, say, 10 years apart, all of a sudden the bank is gone. You can see the, the, the clear fact that the bank has eroded. The church is a bit like that. Sometimes what was central to the church, like, like um, mission and the vitality of evangelism, are now forgotten. And when this type of erosion takes place over many years, it's difficult to tell how it's happened. Difficult to tell. But what is known is the the powerful gospel of grace has been forgotten. The sanctifying, transforming work of the Spirit is no longer a key for that church. The believer's life is replaced by a form of godliness, a tradition, or even a foundation of the false gospel. Now, I think as we've read these seven verses, this commentary on Ephesus, you can see that Christ himself gives a very clear warning. Firstly, he commends them in verses 2 and 3 and verse 6. And then he condemns them verse 4 and then he issues a warning see I reckon there's no other church in the New Testament quite like Ephesus I reckon if you wanted a model church Ephesus was it Paul founded it on his third missionary journey if you went back to Acts chapter 19 you can read about the founding of this church it was predominantly a Gentile church. Yeah, there was an element of Jewishness to it because when Paul ever ever went into a community, he first would go to the synagogue. So if a place had a synagogue, it had a minimum of 12 Orthodox Jews. He would go and he'd reason with the scripture in the synagogue. You read this in, in Acts chapter 19. He reasoned there. They got a little upset about it. So they kicked him out. So what did Paul do? You can read the story in Acts 19 verse 8. He said, okay, he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, he said, okay, I'm out of here. I'll take the disciples. I'll take those who have 
committed to Christ, and we'll go to the school of Tyrannius. And he spent two years in the school of Tyrannius, reasoning daily. We're not quite sure, but we think it's probably between four to six hours per day he would go into this building and he would reason from the scriptures of who Christ was. Later in Acts, we, we read when he, he, he calls the elders over to him and gives them a bit of a farewell speech that he actually had spent three years there. Imagine that. Your senior pastor for three years was Paul. That's what the heritage of Ephesus was. And not only that, when he had finished, he sent Timothy there. And one of the things he said to Timothy, I think is really pertinent in, in this discussion about the, the scorecard that, that Jesus gives in Revelation is aimed here in 1 Timothy. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 3, as I urge you when I was in Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So this is Paul talking to Timothy, so that you may uh, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which uh, promote speculations, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the charge he, he gave to his young consort, Timothy. I want you to remain at Ephesus. I've invested three years of my life in there. I've met with those elders and, and, and really have passed on the beauty of the gospel. Now, Timothy, I want you to do this as well. But really notice what the warning from Paul to Timothy is. I want to warn you about false teaching that's going to occur. Teaching that's going to, and back in Acts 20, he talks to the elders and it's teaching that's going to come from within. False teaching. And you can see from the result 40 years later, now just realise this, Revelation is written 40 years after the book of Ephesus. The letter of Ephesus was written some two or three years after Paul had left Ephesus. So we're talking some 40, 45 year period that we now have a report from Christ about what's going on in this church. Christ presents the report card. In verse 2, I know your works. This is a significant word In our New Testament, when we ever see the word know, it can, it's been translated from two primary words. The common word is, speaks of progress of knowledge. So for instance, if, if you're in education, if you're, if you're learning something, that's what you would say. I'm in the process of knowing about this particular thing. So if you're training for nursing or whatever, you have a progress of knowledge. The word that's used here of Christ knowing is not about a progress of knowledge. It's about full and complete knowledge. It depicts the absolute clearness or mental vision which photographs all the facts 
of life as they pass. Every time we read in the book of Revelation, particularly about what Christ knows, that's what it's reflecting. He knows all things. Which shouldn't surprise us, right? Because Christ being very God knows all things. He is all-knowing. It's one of the divine attributes of God. And Christ is God, so we have this divine attribute. He knows all things. Christ has absolute knowledge of the situation in Ephesus. And what does he say? I see your toil, I see your patience, I see your endurance. I see you're bearing up for the name of Christ, you're not growing weary. I also see you hate the Nicolaitans. We don't know who these people are, we don't have enough information from God's word to say, well, this is this type of people. But what we do know about them is they hated the things of Christ. Hence the commendation by by the Lord to these people. You've you've identified, you can you can smell a heretic a mile away and you've dealt with them. See, if you were to stop at this point in time and analyse this church, you'd say they're doing pretty well. You'd have nothing but praise for them, right? They loved the truth. They persevered in proclaiming the things of Christ. They were tireless in their zeal for the truth. They were patient and they they did not grow weary. What a wonderful, wonderful report. But always be wary of buts. Because this is what Christ does here, but this I have against you. Christ who knows all things, who walks amongst the churches, has this warning, this condemnation. Even though you're doing all these things well, you have lost your first love. This church loved the truth. They persevered in proclaiming the gospel. They were tireless in the pursuit of following Christ. They did not even grow weary in this, but they abandoned the love they first had. I reckon that's a far better translation. They abandoned it. They moved away at the implication of separating themselves from this divine love. And you say, well, how did this happen? How does that happen? Church don't be going for 40 plus years. How, how of a sudden it started so well and all of a sudden it's now ended up here? How they separated from the love of Christ? How they departed from that? How, what has occurred in the second generation church for the Lord to condemn them in such a way? You see, they were incredibly orthodox in practice. They knew their scriptures well. They knew who Christ was. They loved the truth. But in one short statement, Christ isolates a critical, critical issue. You've lost your first love. 
It's at the most basic level their love for Christ had grown cold. That's what's happening here. Their love for Christ had grown cold. It's obvious when you look at this also condemnation from Christ in Revelation 2 that leaving your first love does not equate to the loss of all love. Okay? So what does that mean? Leaving your first love doesn't equate to loss of all love because they were commended for the things of patience, love of the truth and perseverance. So there were elements in the church that were going well. Not that the entire congregation had lost their first love, but there were elements inside the congregation that were cold, lifeless. The first, the love for Christ was being eroded slowly over this 40 year period. So they're either either in the grip of legalism or in the grip of license. Either in the grip of legalism or in the form of license. And this didn't happen overnight. This happened over a long period of time. As I've looked at this particular portion and tried to correlate, well, what is it? I've concluded the primary issue probably for the Ephesians was legalism. Say, well, how did you come to that conclusion? I grabbed a coin and tossed it. No. (laughs) But legalism on one side, license on the other. So let's see. No. I think generally legalism tends to follow with the truth-orientated type churches. You see, legalism at its heart is an attitude. It's a mentality based on pride. So legalism is an attitude and a mentality based on pride. It is the desire to, to have conformity to an artificial standard for the purpose of exalting yourself. Pride, which is at the very heart of legalism, works in sync with two other motivating factors such as guilt and fear or guilt, fear and shame. These are things that work in conjunction with legalism. I fear that I'm no longer under the God's grace so therefore I'll apply a rule by which I will live and actually I'm going to enforce that upon others. That's the heart of legalism. God by name S. Lewis Johnson 50 years ago said this, one of the most serious problems facing the Christian church today is the problem of legalism. One of the most serious problems facing the church in Paul's day was the problem of legalism and every day it is the same. Legalism wrenches the joy of the Lord from the Christian believer and with the joy of the Lord goes power for vital worship and vibrant service. Nothing is left but cramped, sober, dull and listless profession. The truth is betrayed and the glorious name of the Lord becomes a cinnamon for a gloomy killjoy, i.e. 
baptised believers in lemon juice. So when you walk down the track of legalism, as I think this church in Ephesus has done, you misunderstand the progress you should be making in Christ. You misunderstand what sanctification is about. Scripture clearly teaches that we are justified by grace, right? So by grace you are saved through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Scripture clearly proclaims that. We are justified by grace. Scripture also clearly portrays that one day we'll be glorified by grace. One day our faith will give way to sight. One day our our bodies will be reunited with our souls and will be glorified by God's grace. Scripture also is very clear, and this is what we're going to go through over the next 11, 12 weeks, that we are sanctified by grace. Our sanctification process is not works-based by any means. We're not on a performance treadmill. You see, this church here at Ephesus was described as a church that was standing for the truth but devoid of love and therefore devoid of spiritual vitality. I think they were entrenched in a works-based process for their sanctification. They were on a performance treadmill. Jerry Bridges, in an excellent book called Transforming Grace, provides some very helpful insights about the heart of a legalist. He says he, he believes that all legal we are all legalists at heart. We tend to think that uh, so much performance by ourselves earns so much blessing from God in our Christian walk. He also states that our Christian culture even lends itself to this belief. You think about all the great spiritual disciplines that we're encouraged to do, you know, attendance on Sunday, quiet times, Bible studies, prayer, memorization, witness to our neighbours, giving to mission. Those are great disciplines. That's what the church should be involved with. That's what believers we should be involved with. But when it comes to our motivation, when we have the impression in our minds that when we do these things, they are valuable things that in some way God will bless us. And if we don't do these things, then conversely God won't bless us then we have legalism in our heart. We also have this this difficulty. We turn to Scripture and we see often in our Bibles we see commands to work out our salvation, to pursue holiness, to add to our faith virtues such as goodness, knowledge and self-control and love. And because in our hearts we are actually naturally legalist in our nature, we assume our performance in these things earns God's blessing in our lives. Folks, I want to remind you of the following truth. Our walk, our sanctification is a process of God's grace in our lives. God places his spirit within our hearts. He empowers us by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. 
Our walk should never be on a performance treadmill. We cannot earn favour with God. We cannot earn favour with God. The Christian life from start to finish is on the basis of God's grace for us through Christ. This is at the very heart of our faith. Christ has paid our penalty of sin partially or fully? Fully. He has paid the penalty of our sin absolutely fully. That's awesome news. The debt has been fully paid. If that's the case, is there any possibility of going back into debt again? Is there any possibility of going back into debt again? No. God's wrath is satisfied fully in Christ. Christ's righteousness is imputed to our account. We read that from Romans 4 and 5 this morning. Jesus Christ has already paid for every blessing you and I will ever receive from God the Father. That's the heart of, of the grace of God in our lives. We have been born into God's kingdom by grace. We are sanctified by grace. We receive both temporal and spiritual blessings by grace. We are motivated to obedience by grace. We are called to serve and enabled to serve by grace. We receive strength to endure trials by grace. And finally, we are glorified by grace. The entire Christian life is lived under the reign of God's grace. The church's Ephesus had slipped away from this. They were called to repent. They needed to repent and they needed to walk a grace-based life. This portion is a stark reminder to us. To us here at Monty. To all who profess their faith in Christ. Is your Christian walk about a loveless orthodoxy? Is it about just ticking the boxes and following the rules? Or is your life a life based on grace? And that's what we're going to explore over the next 10 weeks. Let's pray together. Father, we we thank you for the wonderful truth that Christ has fully paid our debt. We thank you for the wonderful truth that we are justified by grace. We thank you for the truth that one day we will be glorified by grace. We will be in the image of Christ himself. Father, you have left us on this earth to walk a life to walk in a way that honours you and our neighbourhoods, within our church environment, within our work environments. And Father, at heart we are all legalists and we all want to try and earn some merit with you. We pray, as we have looked at your word this morning, as we continue to look at your word, you will impact our hearts with your grace and the sufficiency of, of your grace through all areas of our life. Father, pray, we pray that we will understand that our sanctification is all by your grace. 
We pray this in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen.